0: Welcome to the Peaceful Life Podcast. I'm your host, Laura, coming to you from a cottage in the woods in the peaceful mountains of California. Today's episode is the first of several I'm going to do on animals, living peacefully with animals, and how animals can bring peace and joy into our lives. I speak with Michael Howey, a Canadian wildlife advocate whom I met virtually in one of my podcast groups. This is one of my longer shows because Michael is just a font of information about animals in our world, and I had such a fun time speaking with him. We might go off on some tangents because it's a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Here it is. Michael Howey is an award-winning journalist and the Director of Digital Content for the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals in British Columbia, Canada. He's a wildlife advocate and host of his own podcast called Defender Radio, which presents topics on protection and advocacy for fur-bearing animals. Welcome, Michael, to the Peaceful Life podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so you're on your fifth season, is that correct?
1: Yep, it's it's been a while.
0: Wow, with over 200 episodes?
1: Yeah, we, uh, we're doing over 50 a year. Uh, so it's a weekly show, which can be a wee bit stressful sometimes. Yeah. But uh, we're, we're just keep plugging away.
0: Congratulations on that.
1: thank you very much.
0: So did your passion for animal advocacy come from your career or did your career come out of your personal passion, which came first?
1: I would say that it was the passion. I was working as a journalist in Ontario here for about 12 years. Uh, I was a news reporter and a managing editor of a newspaper. And as time passed uh, and I, I aged, I was finding myself drawn to writing about wildlife and environmental issues more regularly. Uh, And as careers do, mine sort of started to wane. I wasn't enjoying the news business very much anymore. And I was sort of considering what other options there were for me. And I had uh, become friends with the fur Bears and said, hey, you know, what do you think of having me come and be your journalist, so to speak? So... Doing blogs and media relations and social media, uh, and the podcast as well was part of that.
0: When I first saw it, I somehow read it as for wearers, <laughs> and then I, yeah, I took a second look. So I'm glad I did, and it's a great show.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, some uh... of
0: it is local to Canada, but I think there's a lot of information that everyone can glean from it.
1: Oh, absolutely. the uh, The subject matter does transcend geography most of the time A uh, great examples a couple of weeks ago i did an interview about um wolf and coyote depredation on cattle in this very small region of alberta and it was a study that was done but the information that is gleaned from it matches some stuff coming out of idaho and wyoming and montana And therefore, okay, well, if it works in all of these locations, what if we applied that same information to, you know, here in Ontario or to Massachusetts? And what you start to see is that this information, while it may be geographically located, it really, the lessons sort of can be applied almost anywhere in the world.
0: Right, right. Now, you and I were talking online about animal advocacy, personal animal mm-hmm. advocacy, things that individuals can do to help protect the lives of the animals around them. What are some of the good things and not so good things <laughs> that a person
1: can do? Uh, and as you know, I have some very strong opinions on the not so good things. Uh, but we'll, we'll start with the, the good things. And I'd say the absolute first thing people can do is just Think, be critical thinkers regarding the world around them. So I am vegan. I believe you are as well. You're one of the
0: weirdos.
1: (laughs) And uh, one of the, so just being vegan is a form of activism, in my opinion. Right. Uh, And talking about it and understanding that to some people, it is strange. It is unusual. It's different. So having that compassion that you have for the animals, for the other people around you. And then I also take that and apply it to living with local wildlife, uh, talking about it in a reasonable way with friends and neighbors uh, over dinner, talking about, hey, I saw this raccoon doing this today. What do you think that means? And looking looking for good information because it is out there. Right. Uh, much of it at thefurbears.com. Plug. <laughs> and then, you know, talking about the news, same thing, same way you would talk about any issue you're passionate about. It's just engaging on that subject. So it becomes more and more commonplace. One of the, the, the largest problems that we as an organization run into when we're working with municipalities or communities on wildlife conflict situations is people simply didn't know there were coyotes in their area or that raccoons could climb up into their attic or that squirrels can chew through lines or mice can fit through a hole the size of a dime or that skunks will leave a den site if there's noise but because they don't know a lot of the what I would sort of call more basic things their reactions are disproportionate
0: right and and talking about that i think the first reaction is to be violent against the this creature that has encroached into your own space and this is kind of what the episode is about is like sharing your world peacefully with these creatures and I know I listened to one of your episodes about you know how to deal with mice or or creatures that have gotten into your house that you don't need rats examples. Yep. Um and that your first reaction should not be violent or to kill them because there's other choices.
1: Yeah, and I think people forget and this uh, th- this is such a large issue. I truly believe that most people at their core are compassionate, do want to do right by the things and people and Uh, wildlife or, you know, even just the property around them, Mm -hmm. Uh, people want to be good. When we're brought up being told that this is acceptable and not only acceptable, but the right way to do things, that is a very, very hard thing to move away from. So I think when we talk about mice and rats and other small rodents or insects, people's reaction is what they've always been taught, what they see on television, what their friends have done. And to sort of start that paradigm shift, that's where we say, okay, what can we do? And we can apply two principles here. One is just pure logic in that killing a mouse in your house largely won't solve the larger problem, which is a mouse got in your house. Yes. And this is true of all wildlife conflict situations that we deal with, is the animal is very rarely the problem. In the in the case of having rats and mice in your house... Yes, you need to remove them because it can be very unhealthy, uh, especially if you uh, or if you have a business and it's a, a food place or you're building materials like there, there are actual health hazards. So you need to look at ways of removing these animals. And we are always going to advocate for the humane methods that you can pretty much just, you know, catch and release. And then you have to look at how they're getting in. And sometimes it's easy. There's a very clear entrance point. And sometimes it's not so easy. Yes, there's mice or rats or squirrels or whatever in here. So we need to remove them and apply your compassion there and do so as safely and humanely as possible. And then apply the logic and say, how did they get in here? And let's prevent that from happening again. And that's really the two-step kind of core process. Well, when we talk about coexistence is understanding what has changed to cause a change. In the animal behavior or in the environments? And how do you also manage that compassionately?
0: Right. Thank you. Here in the US, our president, unfortunately, but not surprisingly, lifted a ban on the import of big game trophies, mm-hmm. including elephant tusks, lion hides. And we've seen these trophy images online, which never cease to enrage people. And again, you know, we, we were talking about posting these really uh, evocative images, what would you recommend that we do as a society here to kind of advocate for animals without splitting the society? Because hunting is a huge issue here. I'm sure it is there, too.
1: Yep. Uh, Hunting is uh, very, very common in Canada, as is uh, fishing. Uh, Trapping, which is our, our primary focus, is... Roughly 30,000 people out of 32 million, uh, but it's large enough that it can be problematic still. Uh, Again, I come back to talking about it and trying to reframe some of this. So when we talk about big game, there is the common conception that, well, I'm helping this little village. Right. And this is where, as an advocate, my journalism kicks in. Because the instinctual gut reactions to a statement like that is, no, it's not. You're wrong. And the truth is it does help the community because they are spending money. Right. But the long-term health of that region is put at risk by big game hunting, uh, particularly predator big game hunting. So it's, yes, you might give them a temporary gain, but at what cost? Mm -hmm. And these are also often regions where they're maybe not managing the populations very well. So, yes, come hunt this elephant. But how long is it going to take for that elephant to be replaced? And
0: well, they say it's positive for wildlife conservation, and that the sportsmen who pay a hundred thousand dollars or more per hunt for these animals provide the funding for conservation. But again, is are there any real data behind that?
1: Well, and that's the question to ask. So we do know that, in the United States, I know, uh, and Canada is a little bit of mix and match, the fees from hunting, trapping, and fishing are redirected into conservation efforts. So this is true. However, um, when you then look at what those conservation efforts are, and uh, forgive me for not knowing the top of my head, I know there are references to this uh, out there and available if people choose to Google them. Right that when you look at the wildlife managed through this funding, it tends to be game species and it's not a holistic ecosystem approach, which is what is necessary. So it's one of these, there's a little bit of truth with a whole lot of uh, slant taking place in some of these statements. And that's where for me, again, as an advocate with a background in, in hard news, I try and be very, very cautious Because misrepresenting information does not fix misrepresentation of other information. In fact, it can make it much, much worse. And I can think of, you know, there's a a couple of good examples and I'm going to hijack you here because this is what I was, I was texting you about the other night that I'm, I'm very passionate about is on social media, people sharing things. So there's, there's two points here I want to sort of cover one uh, and I actually use this in a presentation I do on media sensationalism working with the media now. In one case, someone had posted a picture of what looked like a dozen wolf pelts on the ground with two people sort of looking at them saying uh, there is a you know mass slaughter of wolves in the United States taking place and they're uh, shipping all of the pelts to China. Write your senator and tell them this has to stop. So being the lovely, positive person I am, I doubted it and did a little bit of, uh, investigating. And that picture is actually from a news story out of Greece mm. where the government intercepted illegally imported Asian wolves.
0: Ah, so was so almost it's, opposite.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now, so it's just, it's kind of, it's one of those interesting facts. But the part that makes this dangerous is how many people wrote their senator and said, look at this and look how bad it is. Yeah. And while I don't necessarily agree with how politicians do their business, they often hire and surround themselves with very smart people. So these people are going to do the exact same thing I did and see that, nope, this is not true. Right. Right. And all of a sudden you have cast doubt on yourself As an advocate, you've cast doubt on whatever group you may be representing, uh, and you've cast doubt on the issue. So no longer are they going to say, yes, this is something I want to get behind. There's going to be an immediate question. Is this for real? So that was one case that was very interesting to me, just sort of from an academic point of view, almost, but has that clear path of issues. And the other one happened the other night. And I think this is probably my, my biggest pet peeve, someone posted a picture of a woman with dead wolves in the back of a pickup truck. Mm-hmm. And this is a very common thing to get posted by animal activists. And it says, uh, look at this person. And I think she happened to be the daughter of the dentist who killed Cecil the lion. Right. Uh, whether right. or not that's true, I have no idea. Uh, I did not bother looking into it, to be honest. And, and that's all it was, was look at this. Look how disgusting it is and look who she is. And then hundreds of comments and reactions with, and I won't repeat them, uh, but extreme language, violence, uh, misogyny, all kinds of horrible, horrible things being said. Mm -hmm. And I asked two questions that went unanswered. One, what was the point in sharing this? Right. And two, what does it say about us as a group of advocates? If this is how we respond, Uh, if we use this kind of language and this hatred and this, this threat of violence and to be very, very clear saying, I want someone to hunt you on Facebook does count as a death threat. Right.
0: Uh, Right.
1: that's something that is forgotten.
0: It's unfortunate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's, it's when you're going to do that. And we have a very, very strong policy at the Furbers about sharing graphic images. Mm -hmm. It's we warn you first, so, you know, you're going to see it and only if it serves a purpose, Are we going to show it? Um, So if it's essential to understanding what we're talking about, we'll show it. But part of it, too, is we're going to give you something to do. So it's not look at this horrible thing in the world and just feel angry and seethe about it. It's look at this really horrible thing in the world. Here's how you can be part of the solution. Right. And we have an advocacy item or we have this is how you can reframe the conversation or like we, we provide something for people to do. Because otherwise, you're just filling people with anger and hurts and leaving them.
0: Well, that also brings me to like the extreme advocates. Um, And now with the internet, they're going on Facebook Live. And, you know, I'm breaking into this establishment and I'm saving this pig. And they're, you know, to me, I'm really conflicted. Yes, these animals are being treated poorly. But you're also breaking the law and what that does is it sets you up to be criticized for being the bad guy so here you are trying to you know help these animals but i really believe that you should do it within the legal channels you know because otherwise you you just set yourself up i believe you're you're lowering yourself to their level
1: i think there is a time and a place for civil disobedience I think that there is a time and a place to challenge law and order as it is set out in society. I don't know if this is the time or the place. Um, What I do know is it is important to stop and ask ourselves, what is the long-term gain here? Because there are some actions that I truly believe are more cathartic for the person taking them than they are beneficial to the animals. And this, I, I, feel this is a, you know, a philosophical debate that I'm not entirely equipped for just based, based on my complete lack of education. However, I do think it is important to question our own motives, just have that insight. So again, as I said, if your long-term goal is animal liberation, which is a very common phrase, ask how is this specific action helping accomplish that goal? And how is my specific action influencing how people view my goal? Uh, Which is something I think, again, as a society, we need to do more of. And I think the current president is a great example of when you don't consider what people perceive versus what you intend.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Earlier, you spoke of... um, education and how we grow up and how we are patterned to believe certain things. A lot of our education as kids, especially on wildlife, comes from the zoo. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember going to Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago as a child. And to me, it was just really sad. And I don't know if I was just super sensitive to this. Um, And even as a child, I just felt like this was wrong and I know many of them are doing great work with endangered species and research but I personally even as an adult can't get past the animals being confined for human entertainment Mm -hmm. so should zoos be abolished or do they serve a purpose for conservation
1: well no loaded (laughs) questions today Um...
0: (laughs) you thought this was gonna be easy huh
1: I don't think there is a blanket answer. And as frustrating as it is, people who know me know that I often only give blanket answers when I have no idea what I'm talking about and have a great deal of feigned authority or confidence. Most zoos, I think, exist to entertain people. And for most zoos that exist to entertain people, I think that... The people will always come first. That means the money will come first. The experience will come first and not the animals needs individually. And if anyone's interested in kind of learning more about that, just look up uh, the five freedoms. It's a, a great sort of primer on how to consider some of these issues. That said, there are some zoos. There are some sanctuaries that do have conservation work that is helpful. I know that I, I spoke of the marmots, they are at, uh, they are one of Canada's most endangered species. We're talking hundreds of them exist. They only exist in a small geographic region. Mm-hmm. Uh, their greatest threat is climate change and habitat modification. And one of the things they're doing is captive breeding to try and just rebuild that population. And it's very, very important that they keep doing this because that's sort of the, that, the, the population depends on this breeding program. And the breeding program takes place at a zoo. So it's not an easy answer for me because that does happen. And from what I have been told by people involved in this, these animals are kept in a, as close to native habitat as possible and are shipped to the location and released to be part of marmot society, so to speak. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I also know, uh, through, you know, extensive conversations with ZooCheck and various other organizations that a lot of the time when a zoo says we do conservation work, they do kind of, um, so they may have, you know, this tiger in captivity, but unless they are breeding and releasing, is it really conservation work? So it's one of those times when you just have to sort of question it. And I don't think there's a clear answer. I think generally speaking, like, you know, Toronto zoo had elephants, like they should not be in Canada. That's just silly. They should not be on concrete. Uh, you know, animals that are used to roaming, uh, kilometer long ranges should not be in cages that are five square feet. I even have trouble. Like we've got, uh, reptile zoos. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those and they're, they're kind of like a petting zoo with snakes and lizards. And I even struggle with that because they live in these small tanks. And there's a difference between content and thriving. But then, of course, you have to start questioning when you have this conversation. Well, what about my dogs? What about cats? What about fish? Yeah, and, I
0: know. I know. It's like, what's the line? Yeah.
1: And that is that is my difficulty in many of these conversations is I don't always see a very hard, clear line. Mm -hmm. And I think when you try and impose one, you also set yourself up for failure. Like there's a very famous sign that says, um, it's a, it's a line of animals. Uh, you've probably seen, it's a road sign somewhere and it's, you know, why, where do you draw the line between, you know, love and food? And it's like dogs and cats and this and that, and then cows and goats and pigs. And most people that I have seen comments on this are very comfortable in saying where they draw the line. Like, yeah, it is right between dog and cow. And I feel like when you sort of put it out there in that way to say there has to be this hard line, it it becomes almost too easy to mock for people who are uncomfortable with the subject. Uh, So with zoos again. It's like, oh, well, if we didn't have zoos, we wouldn't have X, Y, Z animals. And that's not entirely untrue, but. That still isn't really good or bad. Uh, Yeah. So, well,
0: what they do really well around here, and I I don't know if you know my story, but I've been a city girl all my life. And, you know, six years ago, I moved up to the mountains right adjacent to Yosemite. Mm -hmm. And what they do really well here is wildlife education in the schools and starting young, which we didn't have in Chicago. You know, like, like I said, all we did was go to the zoo. But, um, You know, here the rangers come out, they talk to the children, um, they have special programs where the schools can go into the park for the day and learn about the wildlife. And I believe that this should be more prevalent and especially in the urban environments, you know, because even in L.A., they have wildcats that come around to your door and, you know, they're encroaching. So you had posted a great image. It had a deer crossing the road and it said, things are not always what they seem. The deer isn't crossing the road. The road is crossing the forest, Um, which is Wonderful, because it's a great reminder that wildlife was here first, and we've moved into their territory.
1: Absolutely. And that's, again, that's challenging the way we think. It's that critical thinking. Again, uh, some of the educational programs we offer, uh, just typically in class visits where we do guided hikes for school groups and camps, that is a large component of it, is questioning things, asking, explain why this is a thing. Mm -hmm. And I think in general, that is, well, I can only speak to my experience as a student many, many years ago, but that was not present for many things. We were taught to remember things and then spout things. We were not taught how to think necessarily. And I believe if we do that with wildlife, it will only benefit society at large. Even if you come down on the side of, well, I've questioned all of this. I've looked at all the evidence and I think it's okay to do X, Y, Z. At the very least, you're engaging in a different way. I really like that image though. Uh, And it reminds me in Oakville uh, where I'm from originally, uh, which is a suburb between Hamilton and Toronto. There was a series of coyote sightings and people were very, very concerned. Uh, And again, it's that same thing I was saying is people aren't used to seeing it. They don't know it's there. So when they do see it, they react. And people say, where'd they come from? They've never been here before. And we know we should ship them up to Algonquin Park five hours away. All this other crazy stuff. And I ended up, I was working for a newspaper in the region at the time, going to the library and getting old aerial images of the area. From the 70s, the 80s, and then into the 2000s. And in the 70s, it was all field and forest. In the 80s, roughly half of it had been converted to you know, suburban housing. But in the last five years, all of the remaining area had been plowed down and turned into car dealerships and self-storage units mm. and those great big buildings. Right. And it, like when you then look at exactly where all of these sightings and concern, quote unquote concerning behavior was, it, it was right next to what had been probably Coyote Habitat for 50 years. Uh, we literally paved it and then we're shocked to see them not there anymore. Uh, so it's 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 very difficult sometimes to sort of have those conversations and remain.
0: Yeah, and you have to just switch your perception. Yeah, yeah. I have a photograph. I collect old photographs too. And um, I have one of Los Angeles and it's, it literally says Highland Avenue. And I don't know if you know, Hollywood and Highland is like a huge tourist spot. And this photograph, which is not dated, has one farm on it and a mountain behind it, which is where the Hollywood sign is. But it just, it must've been from the late 1800s. And it's just amazing because it's one farm and then just land. And that was it. So it just brings it into perspective what we've done.
1: Yep. Yeah. And the thing that's incredible, though, is how the animals adapt.
0: Right. They, they don't do.
1: question it. They don't complain. They just go about their lives and find a way.
0: Exactly.
1: Uh, now, I wanted to ask you, because yes? I've been rambling a lot uh, about so many wonderfully positive things, After dealing with some of this stuff, so, you know, we see these pictures, we have these conversations, what do you do to bring yourself back to a place of peacefulness or being more content with sort of all this chaotic stuff and noise around you?
0: Um, I kind of did an episode about that, you are what you tweet. Mm -hmm. And um, this podcast actually grew out of the despair that I was going through last year the state of our country is, to me, is just really horrific. Um, and what we have to deal with on a personal level every day is specifically online. So it's, it's about, again, not propagating the stuff that I don't want to see just to enrage people. Um, That is one tip that I I do tell people. And sometimes I still do that. I, I get enraged and I'm like, look at what he said, you know, and this person that I will never name. But then I immediately delete it. And I thought, okay, this is not putting good out into the world. And the best thing I can do is take care of my little corner. You know, I can't change the world. I can't change my country. Um, but I can take care of my little corner. And that's how my podcast came about is like, what can I do? It was the end of last year in December to just like, Put good out and talk about the good things that are happening, or how to approach things in a more positive way. And I know you made fun of me online. You said, <laughs> "Stop being so positive," you know. But that is literally the only way I can get up in the morning mm-hmm. um, and and face what's going on, because every day we get a piece of news that is so incredibly unbelievable or hurtful. Or um, you know, that that affects us. And so that's why I do this.
1: It's a good reason. Yeah, I've uh definitely changed my social media consumption. I, I'm still a news junkie uh and I want to get a lot of that stuff and I share some of it, but I have definitely reduced the well, I, I should say I've definitely unfollowed many, many people. Yeah. Definitely. Um who posts. And it's I'm not against seeing bad things i have learned to compartmentalize and manage myself in a lot of ways over the years with that kind of stuff just being in the businesses i've been in so you know i i do want to know when bad things happen but i am more selective of how i know i would say
0: and i have very close friends who are on the complete opposite side of the spectrum that i haven't blocked um, because they're important to me—family members, close friends—and also I want to avoid the whole bubble syndrome, mm-hmm. where you're only interacting with those who think like you. Because I think that also can be detrimental to having to critical thinking.
1: Absolutely, it's it's uh, a, a big issue. I actually just spoke about that with uh, a science communicator who's on my show uh, first week of June talking about the echo chamber is what she called it. And it's, it's difficult because you do want to hear the other side of things, but you want to get good information. Like that's, that's a falsehood in news is that there's two sides to every story, right? right? That is an absolute falsehood. There can be one side to a story or there can be a hundred sides to a story. Uh, It depends on the story. So when we have, let's say, you know, an economic debate going on, And they say, well, here's the side that thinks that, you know, we should, uh, find a way to feed children. You don't therefore have to have a side that says, and here's the side that, uh, thinks we should get rid of all the children. (laughs) Um, Like you don't have to give those people a voice. Uh, so yeah, I definitely manage that.
0: And I'm not a news junkie and I try to avoid it, but I have this thing on my phone. I don't know how to change it that anytime there's a breaking story, it pings me. Unfortunately, it's always something terrible. So Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I literally wake up to a ping in the morning and I think, uh oh. Another mass shooting or, you know, something has happened and it's never good. So I, I have to figure out how to turn that off on my phone because I don't like waking up like that. That does yeah. not contribute to a peaceful life, I'll tell you.
1: <laughs> well, I like to uh, try and empower the people who are making change uh, when I get stuff like that. So it's, there's been a school shooting and let's let's talk to the kids who are affected. Let's talk to people who have solutions and promote that. And uh, it's hard. It's hard.
0: We've strayed a little on our topic, I but that's blame, okay. I
1: blame you. Uh, I was. I had my notes. I was like, I'm going to talk about coyotes, and coyotes are good. And I like ice cream, and this is the kind of ice cream I like. And then you <laughs> go,
0: well, what about this? Last but not least, do you share your life with any domestic animals?
1: I do share my life with domestic animals. We have, uh, my wife and I have uh, many dogs, and... Uh, JJ was my dog originally. I'll go through the list. Okay. Uh, she is a shepherd lab mix. Uh, I adopted her on my own before my wife and I got together and she is lovely and guards me against people, which is not lovely. Uh, we've got peanut who is a miniature pincher. She is 13 and, uh, still going pretty well. And we've got blue who is an 11 year old Labrador and monster who is a nine year old French bulldog Jack mix. Pidgin, who now has his own Facebook, and, or sorry, his own Instagram, Team Street Bird. Uh He is a three-year-old Boston Terrier Chihuahua mix, and he's the one that's doing uh, dock diving and agility and Frisbee competitions. Wow. And we have Chi-Chi, who is a little tiny Chihuahua of uncertain age who has one tooth. Oh. She's very, very pathetic.
0: Well, that's a great family.
1: Yes, they, they keep me content and peaceful sometimes
0: definitely and uh, my next guest after you is going to be an animal communicator so that will be interesting
1: how do they communicate with animals
0: um we'll see
1: my animals typically tell me they want something by coming over and bugging me until I do things.
0: Oh, I can definitely talk to my dog and my cats. I just posted a video on um, both Peaceful Life podcast and my own wall on uh, me talking to my cat. So you'll have mm. to, do, you'll have to check that out. Anyway, thank you for joining us today. This has been a really informational and pleasant conversation.
1: Thank you for having me. To
0: learn more about Michael Howey and his work in animal advocacy, go to his website, thefurbearers.com, and you can listen to his podcast, Defender Radio, available on all podcast providers, and you can visit him on Facebook at facebook.com defenderradio. You've been listening to The Peaceful Life Podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Have feedback about this or any other show? Email me at laura at thepeaceful.life or like my page on Facebook. Remember, you are a spectacular human being. And by listening, you are that much closer to living a peaceful life. Have a super fantastic week.